Turn your Bibles to Philippians. We've been working our way through Philippians, and I'm, I'm, we're in the last chapter, and I just see so much that we need to get done here in the last chapter. Um, last week, we talked about women in ministry, and um, I still have my job. Everything's good, so I guess it went over okay. Um, the truth of the matter is, is we need to abide by the Word of God. That's all there is to it. And that doesn't mean harshness or a lack of ministry that women have in the church. It just means that there's various roles as we delineated last, last week. Well, today, I really had prepared to go from verse 4 to verse 9. And that didn't happen because I got stuck on verse 4. So just bear with me, okay? There's, there's so much here. And it's stuff that we need. If I could kind of summarize what today's sermon is about to kind of get you geared up for it, it's like, here's our experience here, and then here's Paul over here saying, rejoice always in the Lord. And I think we get hung up over here a lot, okay? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice And then in the next several verses following, there are at least seven directives that Paul gives. And they're actual commands. There's five of the seven that are actual commands that are in the imperative. The first is rejoice, which is a command. Rejoice always in the Lord. The second is be gentle, which is also a command, verse five. The third is practice the presence of God, also in verse five. That is not in the imperative, but it is a directive. The fourth is don't worry about anything, but it's not Bob Marley's version, okay? It's, it's very different, and that is a command to be obeyed, verse six. Pray with thanksgiving, another command in verse six. Focus your mind, a command in verse eight, and then practice the above which is an indicative, it's not a command. Verse nine, it's kind of like, because all these things are happening, we need to be practicing them in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you open up our hearts to receive the word today. I pray, Father, for grace and help, assistance as I deliver it. And Lord, that we wouldn't block the things that bring conviction to our hearts. So often we shovel it over to someone else or, or just don't pay attention. Maybe it's because we've heard sermons on rejoice in the Lord. Maybe it's because we just have other things on our mind. God, we pray that you'd remove the distractions and allow us to just receive your word this morning and let it transform our lives accordingly. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're gonna begin with Paul's admonition, rejoice, And the expectation is that it would be a habit of the lives that he was speaking to because it's in the present tense. It means to do it always, continually, a lifestyle. What thoughts run through your mind when you read Philippians 4.4? Because I know many people would simply shrug and think, yeah, right, rejoice. You don't know the load I'm bearing. You don't know what I'm dealing with. 
And it's true that folks without God and without hope in the world seem to lose heart and possibly hope as they go through life's troubles. They live in a sort of quiet desperation, trying to put a good face on things, but really struggling. There's an awful lot of talk these days about mental health. Well, mental health now has become the go-to escape for everything that's done that we used to call wicked and evil. It's mental health problems. I don't disparage the fact that there is mental health issues, but I think it's kind of a catch-all now and can be used as an excuse. You see, I read a poem written in the mid-1900s, and there was a phrase that just stood out to me. The man termed this age the age of anxiety. I have nothing to say about that except just look at 2020. The age of anxiety. Another writer in an essay on happiness in the modern era shares how she thinks happiness has been eclipsed by a sense of quiet desperation. There's that term again. And she profiled people that have lost their happiness by relaying the thoughts that might run through their minds as they're in bed late at night. Quote, so many people are relying on you. You and your wife waited to have children and now you're, they're eight and 10 and you're 48. It's too late to start over to jeopardize the salary that you've been at for quite a while now. And if you tried, you would lose your medical coverage. Rejoice always, Paul says. Your mother and father are going to live longer and parents have ever lived before and they'll depend on you to take care of them. And you imagine that as they slide from mild senility into dementia. And your children will have longer adolescence and expect you to put them through college just as mom and dad are entering a home. Rejoice always. Paul says. Your biggest personal asset is your house, which may lose value in the predicted correction that's coming. And you have a hefty mortgage, and your retirement fund is underfunded. I like that. And you don't think your Social Security benefits are secure, and you don't trust banks anymore. Again, I say rejoice, Paul says. We wonder in the middle of the small hours of the night, cold tear, if there is another depression, and what if the banks fail? How will I and my family live? How, how will we buy food and gas and pay for electricity? We don't know how to grow things. What will we eat if it all collapses? Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Really? Sometimes we think of the admonitions and commands in Scripture as being ridiculous, if you're honest with yourself. As if all of that is not enough, keep a person awake at night. We've got the specter of viral pandemics now and lockdowns. And all the insecurity that accompanies something that we can't even see and something that could kill us. Believer, listen to me. All of the above are musings of a person without God. 
I'll clarify that through the rest of the sermon. Because they're without God and living without hope in the world, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's, it's speculation. The mind has gone into speculation there. Certainly the mortgage is real and the pandemic was real. But speculation takes on an ominous proportion when fears creep in and we start thinking, what if? What if? That should just be a red light going off in your mind if you can put the what if before something because it isn't happening. It isn't happening. And believers can get caught up in such thinking and we shouldn't, but it does happen. So people caught up in the world system just aren't happy. I mean, how many are really enjoying their jobs? Or their families, or their wives, or their children? I enjoy reading articles where people without a robust faith try to understand the world around them. I've been trained cross-culturally. I love cultures. I love sociology. And so there's articles that come out and essays that come out where you see those who have not faith trying to grapple with the issues that are thrown at them in this world. And it's, it's interesting. An essay written by a secular author I recently re- reviewed brought an interesting twist to this so-called age of anxiety. And She's a Catholic woman, and she wrote this, quote, Somewhere in the 70s or 60s, we started expecting to be happy and changed our lives if we were not. We left town, we left families, we switched jobs. And society strained and cracked in the storm. I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated. That in a way, life is overrated. We have lost somehow a sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood that this is the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one that we're living in right now. We are the first generation of man that actually expected to find happiness here on earth, and our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, if that is what you believe, then you are not disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches. You are in despair. Boy, I thought that was a great essay. I mean, it was much longer, but I... I'm saving you the rest of it. Just excellent. You'd Cry If It Happened to You by Peggy Noonan was the article. If people have that kind of experience and life proves to be both confusing and challenging, how can the apostle demand believers to rejoice always? Because we live in this world too. Well, let's look at what is behind his admonition. I'm going to talk about the source and sphere of rejoicing. Then I'll move on to how rejoicing is not an emotion, but rather a determination. That's very important. And then I'll just ask a simple question. Do I always rejoice? Do I always rejoice? 
The source and sphere of rejoicing. Christian joy is independent of all things on earth because its source is heavenly and comes from the continual union and presence of Jesus Christ. If you notice, Paul clearly says rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord. Cairo, rejoice, be glad. It means to be well, to thrive. A Greek dictionary says that it's the primary verb to be cheerful, calmly happy, or well off. It's impersonal, especially as a salutation, because people will say, hey, I wish you well, or fare thee well. We don't say that very often today. But this word is often used in the form of greetings in the New Testament, 68 times in 74 uh, verses in the New Testament. And we can't miss the sense of the word well-being in its definition. That is an elusive sense that we all seek. That sense of well-being. Cheerfulness. And this is a distinctly Christian virtue, rejoicing, as we're going to see. The sphere or the source is in the Lord. In the Lord. There's much in those three words, only two in the Greek. It is the dividing line between separates, that separates humanity into two categories. Two distinct groups in the world. One group are the saved, and the other group is not. One group are believers, the others are not. One group is regenerate, the others are not. Only believers are said to be in the Lord or in Christ. So that is the source of rejoicing in the Lord. Our union with Christ is primary. It is a spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Everyone who's born is born into a family of man, humanity. And by virtue of that birth, we are born into a race. Incidentally, it's the only race outside of the angelic race that there is. There are ethnicities, there are not races. We are all part of the human race. And according to Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, all human beings born from that time on were born under the blanket of sin. Call that original sin. And they came into the world separate from God. The source of spiritual life. And a further consequence of spiritual death, because that is spiritual death, to be separated from the source of life spiritually. And if spiritually dead person experiences physical death while still dead in their trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1, they go on to experience what the Bible calls the second death. That is eternal separation from the source of spiritual life in God or in Christ Jesus. That is, that they remain separate from God eternally and will be consigned to the lake of fire or what we refer to as hell for eternity. That's if you remain separated from your source of life, God, now on this earth, you remain like that and you die, you go into the afterlife separate from God, your source of spiritual life for eternity and that would have your consignment to be hell. This is all taught in the scripture very clearly. This is not um, fanciful teaching or doctrine. 
It's not sensational, and many churches don't even touch it anymore because it's uncomfortable to hear. But Christ, but Christ, who knew no sin, became a human being, and he took on himself the sins of the world and died to pay the wages of sin, which is death. So that anyone who admits their sin, turns away from it, and trusts in Christ, sincerely placing their complete trust in him, they become united to a new head, Jesus Christ. You're no longer united to Adam in sin. Now you're united to Christ. And you are what is called regenerate. You have a new life. You've been born again, a worn out hackneyed phrase that was just trampled on so that it hardly has any meaning anymore. But it's biblical. Just read John 3. Jesus Christ, you're no longer united with Adam. You've been eternally united to a new head, Christ. And this is stated in Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It's called the federal headship doctrine. Now the role of affections for Christ and rejoicing. I told you that Christ is the sphere in which we rejoice. It's not in the circumstances that we experience every day. It's in Christ. And so we need to touch not only on our union with Christ, but we need to touch on the role of affection for him. Now when two people love one another, and I've seen this over and over, and I experienced it myself, they always enjoy being with one another. Mary and I are both talkers. We used to talk talk for hours and hours not everybody is like that but if you really love someone you love being around them it could be raining outside and they only see sunshine they're in love right during times of difficulty their joy remains steadfast because they have each other and Paul did command the believers to rejoice always rejoice always but he also wisely added in the Lord now the source and sphere of that rejoicing that Paul commanded was wrapped up in the Lord and Paul lived what he preached to the Philippians. You know it well. When we first started the series, we went back to Acts 16 and, and Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown into the inner prison and had their feet in stocks. And in the middle of the night, it tells us that they were singing praises to God. That is rejoicing in the Lord. The outward circumstances were horrific. They didn't know what the outcome of that would be, but they were in the inner prison, in stocks, and they were rejoicing. So Paul knew what he was talking of, and the Philippians also knew what he was talking about, because you've got to believe that the Philippian church used to tell that story over and over and over again, right? Paul founded the church. He planted the church in Philippi. So outwardly, outwardly, their situation was bleak, but they were rejoicing and singing because the rejoicing was not wrapped up in their circumstance or their situation. Rather, their affection for Christ was unabated by their outward circumstances, and they rejoiced. Paul taught, and we studied this too, to live as Christ. To die is gain. He was expressing his hard attitude to life. 
which is Christ. We just got done singing about that. Christ was his all in all. Truthfully, the believer is capable of obeying Paul's command only by virtue of their union with Christ. You've got to be united to Christ in order to rejoice always. You can put a happy face on things, but then you get hit again, and then again, and then again, and then again. Kind of like the hurricanes in the Philippines. Every year they get hit once, twice, three times. In union with Christ, Paul knew that Jesus was ever present with the believer. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul believed that. And Jesus taught, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. It's for sure, people. And in Romans 8, Paul wrote this, but in all these things tribulation, distress, persecutions, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, we overwhelmingly conquer through him. You'll always see that, that added little thing, in the Lord, in Christ, in God, in him, or through him. Because he loved us, and for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including yourself, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Again. Right? The source and the sphere. The union of the believer with the Lord is not a feeling. It is an objective fact. God has said, Jesus taught it, and Paul preached it. It is an objective fact. Jesus Christ is the source and the sphere of rejoicing. And if you find yourself unable to rejoice, it's probably because you're not understanding the word of God and not applying the word of God as it's meant to be applied in that very area. I'm not scolding you. I'm trying to encourage you. Why does Paul say, let your minds be renewed? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because we got bad scripts up here. We learned them from our families. We learned them from our friends. We learned them from social media. And they're just bad scripts. Many of them totally untrue. And we need to replace those scripts with the truth of God's word and then begin to live according to God's word. Now back to the couple that's in love. Their entire person lights up when they see the other. They long to be close to each other. And when they are, it's wonderful. And they are content. And everything around them fades into the background. They're together and they are rejoicing. Affection is important. The affections of the heart, listen to this, the affections of the heart are the determining factor in the spirit that rejoices no matter the circumstances of the life. Author Brian Hedges put together a list of 10 affections and how God makes changes at the deepest desires and longings and cravings. They're called the affections of the heart. Before we know Jesus Christ, before we have union with him, before we're in Christ or in the Lord, 
those affections are corrupted by sin. And so those desires, passions, and affections are things that are opposed to God and his truth. But once we are saved, things change. In conversion, in its subsequent sanctification process, God changes the wants that drive us. Not merely our outward behaviors conforming them to the image of Christ. Hedges writes this, God will settle for nothing less than the deep affections of our hearts. The good news is that what God demands from us, he will also give to us. And we're back in Philippians again that he works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. All this stuff hangs together so beautifully. What it's supposed to do, folks, is it's supposed to create a worldview in which you live out your life day by day, moment by moment. But we've got an awful lot of opposition to that living. It's called the world. And honestly, even with all the turmoil and frustrating situations that we've experienced this last year, we like this place. We love this place. And that militates against having a biblical mentality in a lot of areas. And so we shut the Spirit's power down in our life. We quench the Holy Spirit because we want to enjoy what we have here in this world. I'm not talking about becoming a bunch of paupers and, and not enjoying the good things that God has given you because he's given us all things freely to enjoy. It's a mental attitude, people. You know, it's like the pastor that was going to retire and, and uh, they gave him a car, brand new car. It was a Buick, but it was new. No offense to the Buick owners here. But anyways, his response was, well, I don't want to go to heaven now. You know? I mean, the things of the world just grab hold of us, and, and, and they're very, very, very attractive to us. So I want you to understand affections. He put together a list of ten affections, okay? And, and here they are. I'm just going to give them to you quickly. You can kind of take notes. I'll read a verse after it to just kind of bolster it up. But uh, the first one and, and, and what I want you to understand is that the ten affections of the heart that are listed here are things that God requires of us, but he also gives to us. It's that double, we work together with God, right? It's a synergy, not in our salvation, but in our sanctification, most certainly. First, godly fear. This is a trembling yet joyful reverence and awe of our holy God. Godly fear. Hebrews 12.28 says that we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And, and here's the clincher. For our God is a consuming fire. See, we forget that God is God. And we're his creation. We think of him as a jovial old man. Real happy. That really loves us a lot. He's also the God of creation. He's also a God that gave us commands to obey and he is a consuming fire. Number two, hope. Okay, that's another affection of the heart and fear is mingled with biblical hope. And this kind of hope is not a mere wish but a confident expectation of good. First Peter 1.3 says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us, you see the working of God in that? He has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. A living hope. 
That's one of the affections of our heart that we receive from God, but we need to cultivate too. Thirdly, desire. The Bible's commendation of desiring God, written in a book, Desiring God by a Pastor on the Other Side of the River, right? Desiring God, fighting for joy. Desire, okay? Augustine said this, the whole life of a good Christian is holy desire. Psalm 63.1, O God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. It's volitional, people. Rejoicing is volitional. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. I will seek you earnestly. Number four, joy. Now this is coupled with and follows from holy desire. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. That is an active thing that you do. It's not something, it's not a, an emotion that you experience. And he will give you the desires of your heart. When you're in sync with God, the desires of your heart are going to be in sync with God because you're in sync with God. Your prayers will be answered because you're praying according to God's will. The desires of your heart will be met because you're in sync with God. Five, hatred of evil. Negative affections are also necessary for the God word heart. Psalm 97.10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil. There's a lot of it around, people. The sheer numbers of murders of babies in their mother's wombs is enough to absolutely have God destroy this nation right now. And we're part of this nation. We're part of it, people. Did God just kind of pick out Israel when he sent the enemies to chasten them? Did God pick out all the good people and say, you guys hang out over here until everything's good? They suffered. The righteous suffered together with the evil because God is a just God and he will do whatever pleases him to do. Number six, brokenness over sin. I can't truly hate evil without mourning my own sinfulness. Psalm 51, 17, David's famous psalm, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise those. You won't look at them lightly. Number seven, gratitude. Gratitude in all things is linked to understanding God's goodness and sovereignty. First Thessalonians 5.18, in everything, there's Paul again, all things, always, in everything, give thanks. <laughs> For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And there's in Christ Jesus again. Number eight, compassion. A beneficiary of God's great mercy. All of us are. And his compassion. Now we're called to demonstrate that same compassion. It's an affection of our heart that we have received from God, but he expects us to give it out to others now. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that, it's a purpose clause, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We don't do this enough, folks. God has brought us through a tough time. We've come out the other side and we don't share with others enough about how he brought us up to the other side. 
And, and we really need to because that's encouraging to them when they're going through the thick of things. And you don't have to have experienced the same affliction they're experiencing to tell them, God is able, man. I know he's able. I'm not going through what you're going through, but I went through enough. And he met me there. He brought me on the other side. Praise God. Compassion and affection of the heart and zeal. Our, our passions are to be defined by God's purposes. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. But get this, we are to be zealous for good deeds. That passion, that zeal is to be for good deeds and it's in us and needs to be expressed. And finally, love. The scriptures command love as the supreme affection and the fountain of all the other affections. Love fulfills the law and it demonstrates true faith. Galatians 5.14, the whole law is summed up in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now those are affections that God gives to us as believers, but that we are to cultivate, recognize, and fan into flame. It's different than a feeling. In fact, my next point is to rejoice is not a drummed up emotion. And I think that's where we really fail to grasp the command to rejoice because we think, it. how can I be happy? My dog just died. And I love dogs, okay? So I'm not talking down on dogs. How can I be happy? I just totaled my car. How can I be happy? I just got fired. How can I be happy? And you fill in the blank. Well, that's a misunderstanding of rejoicing. You can still rejoice in the midst of all that. Matthew 5, 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. And it's great. Well, I think you're rejoicing over something different than a dog or the job or the car. The focus is on the greatness of our reward in heaven. Romans 12, 2 says, Rejoice in hope. Now here the rejoicing is due to that settled conviction and confident expectation of heaven and the reason not to be conformed to the world but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Rejoicing is that state of mind that has volitionally chosen to align thinking with the truth of God's word. Let me say it again. Rejoicing is that state of mind that has volitionally chosen to align thinking with the truth of God's word. And in doing so, the individual gains a sense of deep security that all is well, a sense of well-being. Now, I think of Mark often. Mark Hoffman, he was a member here for many years. And Mark is like the bionic man. I think he's had three heart surgeries where he was dead on the table and God raised him back up. He's just like, the Energizer Bunny can't kill Mark. But Mark got cancer. And you know, I talked to Mark on the phone and it was like a butterfly flying. He just like, it was nothing to him. Why? Because he had, he had practiced rejoicing. He had adopted a, an attitude and a mindset that faced the problems of life in Christ Jesus. It was not daunting to him. Did he ask for prayer? Sure. 
I mean, who wants to die? I love my wife. I love my kids. I love the grandkids. Who wants to die? But at the same time, he was not overwhelmed by that. Instead, he was rejoicing, truly rejoicing. That's why when it comes to the command, rejoice always in the Lord, Paul's not expecting the believers to conjure up some kind of a happy emotion. Instead, he's admonishing them, it is a command, to use their will to direct their thoughts and affections, phroneo, we've studied that word together, be of one mind, and to focus them on rejoicing in the Lord. Set your affections on things above, Colossians 3.2. Well, that sounds pretty active to me, right? Set your affections. It's volitional. One commentator put it like this. This setting of one's mind or affections and the heart calls for a definite act of our will. Not self-effort, but spirit-enabled effort. To daily, continually, moment by moment. Man, you're getting into radical Christianity here. No, you're wrong. This is Christianity 101, people. This is basic. It's only sounding radical to us because we get so caught up in the world. For him to say, daily, continual, moment by moment, be thinking about and directing your minds towards the things of heaven and eternity. (laughs) Wow, conviction. In fact, believers should filter everything they see and experience on earth through the lens of eternity. Believers are otherworldly and are to be heavenly-minded and not weighed down, worried, and bothered by the fleeting fancies of this material, mundane, present, passing age. Uh, That is a good word, and it's convicting. Generally speaking, we're happy when everything's working out for us. We're happy when our relationships are without problems. We're happy when we get a raise. We're happy when things go our way. We're happy when circumstances that we're experiencing are positive and encouraging. But possessing an attitude that rejoices is not dependent on those circumstances. Let me give you one quick example. Habakkuk. (laughs) Habakkuk said this, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, and though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, and and though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will, yet I will exalt in the Lord. It's right there, isn't it? I could have preached a sermon off of that text. Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me to walk on high places. Now, hind is like a mountain goat, okay? And they go from place to place, and they don't slip. That's what Habakkuk was referring to. They're steady. They're confident. They're going from place to place, from glory to glory. And even though everything that was normal and what was expected failed, and even the source of food and comfort were suddenly taken away, the prophet said, yet, which is to say, no matter what, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Just notice 
How volitional that is. The Lord God is my strength. We've heard that, right? It was his settled conviction and confident expectation of the person and character of God as he expressed in the last verse, the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. All of what I've been saying today, and it should encourage us that the command that Paul gave is one that can be obeyed. It really can. It can be put into our lives starting right now today. Always rejoice in the Lord. It's directly linked with our knowledge of him and his character. Rejoicing in the Lord is more natural the more we know him. And that might be a problem too. Maybe first it's the, 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 the volitional aspect of it. You never thought of it in that way. But another problem might be you don't know God that well. How can you really love and rejoice in somebody you don't know? I share a little something with you. It's personal testimony. It's vulnerable. My wife's cringing right now. In between graduating from my missionary training and everything and, and going to the mission field, and we were trained to reach unreached people groups, okay, that, you know, monolingual language is the whole pith helmet type missionary work. I started thinking a thought, and I know where it's from now, but I started thinking a thought, you don't love those people. Stephen, how can you go there? You don't love those people. And it so affected me that I literally called up one of the mission representatives that I really loved and had a lot of confidence in. And I talked to him about that. And I said, I, I think I'm going to drop out. I, I don't love those people. He said, what people? I said, those people that I'm supposed to be going to. He says, how can you love somebody you don't even know? And I thought, what a fool, Linary, what a fool. You actually called this guy and said this. But the truth of the matter is it was that simple, right? How can you love somebody you don't know? And if you have a very, very shallow understanding of God, his person, and his character, that's the way your Christian life's going to roll. It's, just, it's simple. It's kind of like, how can you love somebody you don't know? But the deeper that you go in, the more you begin to appreciate, the more you begin to see his fingerprints everywhere, and the more you can rejoice. So this truth is not some pie-in-the-sky theology, a kind of whistling past the graveyard. It is God's truth, and the fact that Paul used it as an imperative when he wrote is indicative that it is to be obeyed. If anyone still believes that rejoicing is just a feeling, and feeling happy, and that life just doesn't allow us to always feel happy, then I'd encourage you to listen to the sermon again. Seriously, just go back and listen again and take some notes. (laughs) That, again, is not a scolding. It's just an encouragement because God is trying to get through to us through his word. I love my job. I love it, and I love you people. And I just want the best for you. Nehemiah's words take on new meaning when we consider that rejoicing is an act of our will and not an emotion. Quote Nehemiah, Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. 
The people of God had just been reunited with the law. You remember that? They rediscovered the law and they read it to them and they sat and listened to the law being read. And after a long time without it, they were under heavy conviction. God's word had brought them to their knees and they repented. And that's when Nehemiah said to them, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Get up, wash yourself off. His work has been done in you. You're convicted, it's okay. Get some good food. Eat together with those. And those that don't have food, share with them. And because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not groveling around. Not groveling around. You see, Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is your strength. It was time for God's people to assume a settled conviction and a confident expectation that God loved them and had rescued them and they were his people. His focus was someplace else, not on their circumstances because they didn't have a lot going for them right then. <laughs> They'd just come out of captivity, right? Things were not looking very good. The joy of the Lord was their strength. And so it is with God's people today who are to obey that command to rejoice in the Lord always and again. Paul says rejoice. Now in the coming weeks, we're going to look at those other six remaining distinctives, being gentle, practicing the presence of God, not worrying about anything, praying with thanksgiving. Oh man, 4-8, focusing our minds, think on these things. Oh man, oh man. This is going to be fun, and it's going to be encouraging. So I encourage you to come back. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which is always fresh, it's always new, it's always encouraging, sometimes convicting where we need it. And Father, let us take that conviction and turn it to action called repentance. And let us move forward in confidence knowing that what you have done for us is finished, it's completed. There's nothing more we can do to add to it. Now we just need to walk in the truth of our identity in Jesus Christ. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.